Schwab Advisor Services is proud to support the RIA Edge podcast and equally proud to support independent financial advisors like you. In a challenging year, how did 68% of firms surveyed in Schwab's RIA benchmarking study meet or exceed their new client goals? By following key success factors, such as leveraging new technology, adapting strategies to win new business and stay connected with their clients, while also attracting and developing the right talent. The Schwab RIA benchmarking study is just one of many ways they provide you with the insights and resources needed to succeed and grow. Get the full picture at advisorservices.schwab.com. Hello, and welcome to the RA Edge podcast. This is Mark Bruno, Managing Director of the Wealth Management Group at Informa, and we are delighted to have our very first outside expert here on RA Edge. Uh, we have Alan Darby, who is the Chief Executive Officer and the founder of Alaris Acquisitions, joining us today. Alan, thank you so much for, for taking the time to sit in on the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Mark. I'm, I'm super excited. It's a privilege to spend time with you. I look forward to it. Yeah, and we're really looking forward to you know, this conversation here today. As I mentioned just in the beginning, every single person that I've interviewed on RA Edge since it launched almost a year ago, if you can believe it, has been an advisor or the owner and leader of an, an advisory firm. Um, we felt like you know, on every podcast, we've talked about merger and acquisition activity because in the RIA space, it has been one of the most dominant, if not the most dominant theme you know, in the channel um, and potentially across the wealth management industry in general. But over the last quarter, in particular, um, markets have changed, the economy's changed, um, world is a very different place you know, now than it was in the beginning of the year. Um, and as you know, our audience, and you know better than every, anyone else, We've seen year after year of record M&A activity. So we felt like it was really important, Alan, to have you on to give you know, your point of view. We know that you're so involved in so much of the M&A activity that happens, but it's a little bit more you know, behind the scenes than most of our listeners probably recognize. So with that, before we get into the sort of mid-year update and outlook, Alan, if you could, a little bit of background on Alaris acquisitions and specifically the types of RA firms that you work with would be really helpful. Sure. Uh, well, happy to. So um, at Alaris, we like to think of ourselves as a, a neutral party in the M&A dance between a buyer and a seller. So uh, if you think about historically the way a seller would look for a partner, a buyer in this scenario, um, historically they've had two paths. They can try to do it themselves and negotiate one-on-one -on -one with a particular buyer, which is perfectly fine. But if they're not familiar with deal structure and economic terms and how to negotiate, it can be it can be time consuming at a minimum and, and certainly distracting from their business. You have to kiss a lot of frogs, but it can be done. Uh, the other route is to hire a sell side advisor, which there are a number of fantastic banking firms out there that exist that they can represent the seller um, to go out and find them a partner. And it's a better process, I think. Um, it just tends to be focused on the math and where they, they screen potential fits based on the indications of interest, which are driven by the valuation. Um, so it's a better process, I think, than doing it yourself, but it, it tends to focus on the math and um, it's expensive, you know, so you'll pay hundreds of thousands of dollars in, in fees um, to go that route. So we're a third option. Uh, we're engaged by buyers. So we have probably 32, 33 buyers, uh, all the national firms that you would recognize, a number of regional firms that ask us to go out into the marketplace and find partners for them. We don't represent them as an agent or a fiduciary. Uh, they merely know that our process is designed to, to really nail the cultural fit. So if you know my background, I, I led the United Capital M&A team for about eight years, all their outbound um, M&A activity, working with Matt Brinker and Joe Duran. 
And so it's the same process that I ran for United all those years, just as today we work with multiple buyers. And so what I tell people is if you, if you want to go through this process, we'll get you to the same place that the sell side would, but it'll be a better economic outcome because you don't have to pay the fee. And it's certainly going to be emphasizing the cultural fit. So uh, that's what we are. That's what we do. Cool. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. And I think a lot of our listeners are very familiar with you and with Alaris, but just good to have a better, more specific sense for the point of view that you have, given all the activity that's taking place right now in the market. Um, so with that, let's just jump in you know, right there and get a sense for, you know, Alan, I'd love to you know, get your take on with everything that's happened you know, in the markets, um, with everything that's happening in the industry right now, seemed like going into this year and in the early part of the year, we were going to see just a, an, another you know, 10th or 11th consecutive year of record M&A activity in the RIA industry. But given everything that's that's transpired over the last 60, 90 days, where are we now uh, and where do we go from here until the end of the year, second half 2022? Yeah, well, you know, that there's a lot of things in that question. You know, um, I think when most people ask, they're, they're really concerned about, is it impacting the uh, multiples being applied? Is it impacting terms? Is it impacting the interest in sellers or buyers in pursuing M&A? So I'll try to maybe touch on each one of those real briefly. Uh, certainly the volume of activity has not slowed. Uh, if anything, it's, from my perspective, it's just as robust as it was going into fourth quarter last year, which was as busy as I've ever been uh, in M&A. So we haven't really seen uh, the lack of interest from, from sellers uh, as well as buyers. So that, that remains very positive. Uh, summer time is upon us, and so that normally comes with a bit of a slowdown, but uh, nothing that we would see you know, kind of abnormal. Um, in terms of valuations, the multiples that, that are being applied and offered today also haven't really changed. So we haven't seen a pullback given the, the markets or given interest rate you know, increases that, that people are kind of projecting that might impact multiples. Uh, it hasn't occurred yet, not to say it won't occur, but we haven't seen any softening there. What we have start to see, started to see is um, terms starting to adjust a bit, uh, particularly around, uh, well, let me say this from the seller's perspective, coming into the beginning of this year, last year, they were really concerned about removing or excluding the market impact uh, to the valuation. So typically transactions are structured, there's a, there's a, you know, a number placed on the value, the value of the business, that's gonna be paid out a certain percentage at closing and the buyer is gonna hold back a certain percentage in what would be called a retention payout, which is essentially the buyer trying to ensure that the clients and the revenues they're in that they acquired stay. Um, and usually it's about a year, this is a time period they're trying to measure. And the seller uh, being okay with that would wanna exclude things that were outside of their control given the, the market as well as it's done over the last several years they wanted to remove the impact of the market decline on their valuation. So that was a term that we saw very, very prominently in most transactions. Well, now it's kind of the opposite. So that now that the carnage has taken place, uh, we see sellers want to bring in the market impact to the valuation. So we've seen that kind of clause being removed. Um, we've seen earnouts becoming more and more uh, prominent in the transactions where, where if there is a reduction in valuation given the revenue declines in the short term, the seller could expect to recoup that, you know, by a um, in an earnout type fashion. So the terms are changing a bit, but we haven't seen uh, much in terms of multiples in seller activity. Yeah, I appreciate that, and it's it's helpful because yeah, you know, I think you go back to probably you know, March twenty twenty, 
um, when you saw you know, such a sharp drop in the markets and people were asking very similar questions, it was obviously a different environment. And at the time, we didn't really see deal activity fall apart at all. Um, we just yeah. saw maybe terms change, but if anything, maybe the duration, right? So the amount of time it took to get a deal done became a little bit, bit longer. So it's good to get your perspective on that. Maybe we just break it apart a little bit too and look at it both in terms of you know buyers and sellers. Um, so much of the activity that's taken place over the last couple of years has been driven by you know, the professionalization of the, the buyer market, if you will. So uh, just from a buyer's perspective, what are you seeing now in terms of you know, their appetite to do M&A for one, but two, the types of firms that they're most interested in acquiring right now? Well, certainly the appetite is still there. Um, there's, and there's, as you said, I, I really appreciate that comment that you made about the the sophistication of the buyers that's just getting better and better and better. And so that's a very positive trend in the market. And there's more um, that are coming into the market. And we, you know, we get contacted by private equity firms uh, frequently who are not even in the space, but they want to deploy capital into it. So I don't think. The um, from a buyer's perspective, the appetite is slowing at all. I think they're they're clearly going to be a little bit more scrutinous of the transactions that they're doing, but you know the appetite is is still very robust. Okay, and when you're looking at the seller and their motivations, there have been so many, you know, but the valuations being you know at all time highs. Um, was at the top of the list, but obviously the demographic, right? Typical owner being at or you know, in sort of the retirement zone. Um, I mean, how have the motivations or the interests of sellers changed if they have at all? You know, I, I really don't see that they've, they've changed that much. Um, the, the things that drive normal transactions, you know, and it's not... I would tell you that the average transaction that we've worked on in the, over the years, the, the seller age is probably in their early fifties. Okay. So they're, they're, they have a lot of gas in the tank. You know, they're not looking to exit the business. That's a myth that we often have to uh, unpack with sellers when they're, they're thinking that transacting with a larger firm is equivalent to them exiting the business. It's just the exact opposite. The buyers are looking to acquire talent uh, more than anything. So I think, you know, there's, there's, from a seller perspective, there's the recognition that transacting with a larger firm does not mean that you have to exit the business. Um, you know, so why would you? Why would they seek a transaction beyond that? Well, there's a there's really three broad categories of drivers. There's the monetary aspect of it, which you know is sufficient, it's easy to understand. Sellers are just at a point where they're they're ready to take some chips off the table or de-risk their asset. And so transacting affords them the ability to extract some of the cash out of their business. There's succession planning, which we put into the monetary drivers as well because it has an economic output. A lot of sellers just haven't solved that succession plan. They either don't have the younger people on the team uh, or more commonly, they do have them on the team, but they haven't figured out the economic or legal pathway to a succession. And so transacting with an external firm just simply solves that for them. And then of course, the ability to roll a portion of the equity into the buyer's equity, you know, the seller's equity into the buyer's equity um, is very attractive. You, you, you read all the stories of the successes that have been had in the, in the, more, the recent term. And so I think that's very attractive to sellers, the thought of being able to exchange their equity for a faster growing firm. Then there's the, but the monetary drivers, I don't find to be the most important reason firms, reasons firm transacts. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the quality of life. You know, they've just hit this point of maturity in their business where they're willing to say, you know what, I don't have to control it all anymore. 
Um, I would, I would be comfortable to divest some autonomy in exchange for more freedom to, and freedom to do more of what they enjoy. So it's getting out of all the stuff that no one really likes of so compliance and accounting and bill pay and technology management and all that stuff. Well, every buyer is going to centralize that. And so they're going to, they're going to remove that from your plate. You're going to get some capacity back in your life. Uh, what you do with that capacity is, is somewhat dependent on the buyer. There are buyers who are quite growth oriented and they want to deploy organic growth strategies and, you know, have you, have you really uh, move the needle forward? There are others who it's, it's not as important to. So that I, I find like the quality of life is really behind most successful partnerships. It's access to new resources, access to people that they don't have to hire locally. You know, all of that goes in the quality of life. Um, and that, that's a major driver for the partnership. So just because, you know, valuations may be impacted or uh, revenues are down, that doesn't affect the quality of life driver, right? So that, that's still prominent. Um, and then thirdly would be organic growth, being able to, a lot of the buyers are really strong in driving organic growth where some of the smaller firms aren't so great at it. And so being able to, once they've cleared the decks operationally and they've got all these new support and resources, being able to latch on to some of the, the larger buyers, organic growth strategies is a major win. So that hasn't changed. None of that's changed, right? So yeah. That's, yeah. I appreciate that you just sort of hit right away this idea that, you know, the the exit strategy, right? This or the perception that you know, a lot of the M and A has been driven by people who are just looking for a quick exit um, is is in fact a myth. Um, you know, we've seen more sell and stay, right? We've seen more people who are motivated to do a deal because they're looking for ways to grow, right? For all the reasons that you just just cited, um, and I would love to actually you know, you spend a minute or two on that. I think you know one of the things that doesn't get talked about enough. We tend to talk about deal activity and deal size and valuations all the time. Um, but I don't know that we talk about uh, the options and the increasing number of options that are available to people who are running firms now to do you know, various different types of M&A activity. Um, so, for example, we've seen a lot of firms that have sold you know, minority investments. Right. Uh, seen more and more firms you're looking at sell and stay um, as opposed to just you know, selling and taking off. Right. Um, yeah. I, where- I would say they're, they're the majority is the sell and stay. The, the minority would be the sell and leave. Yep. And, and it makes a lot of sense, right? Um, I mean, it is it is as people-oriented of a business as it gets out there, right? Um, so what are you buying if you're not buying you know, the relationship between the the partner, the founder, and their your their clients in some cases? I am curious. I mean, is there anything, if you were to look at the landscape, the different options that are available to sellers right now, how do you think the composition of M&A activity will evolve? And not just over the second half of 2022, but as you look out over the next several years, do you think you'll see more of this sell and stay or will there be be other types of transactions that become a little bit more prevalent? Um, Well, certainly I think the the sell and stay, as you call it, that that will persist to be the dominant model. I think we we tried to, like you, you spoke to the structure minority versus full acquisition. That's something that we've seen evolve where full acquisition, you know, if you think about minority versus full, the historic model that we saw kind of dominate was like the focus partner model. Um, mm-hmm. And that was more of a financial transaction where they were acquiring a, a preferred interest of, of your cash flow and did very little to uh, integrate or change much. You know, it was more of a financial tr- transaction. And you look at someone like United Capital, that was a full integration where a lot of stuff changed. Um, so what we've seen, I think, is more minority structures that are also attempting to integrate. 
So they're, they're doing a minority transaction, but they're still integrating the business. So the seller in that case can receive a lot of the lift associated with a full acquisition while maintaining the majority of their, uh, their EBITDA or their business, you know? So I think that's very healthy. I also have seen um, just the expansion of autonomy profiles. So what, what I mean by that is when we talk to a seller about what does it mean to transact? Well, we, we, we call it the autonomy trade. And that's just the reality that you're looking for something, however you define that, whether it's monetary, quality of life, growth, the things I talked about a minute ago, um, the trade-off is gonna be autonomy. And so today you make all the decisions in your world as an owner, uh, that comes with a burden, of course, but you're still in control. When you transact with a larger firm, and it doesn't matter if it's a majority, full acquisition or minority, you're gonna give up decision-making. Um, but, but it's a spectrum of autonomy, and that's, that's I think, very healthy. There are, there are buyers out there that I would categorize as highly entrepreneurial. So they're going to acquire the business, they're gonna centralize the back office, and they're pretty much gonna leave you alone after that. They're not gonna have really anything to say about your client experience, your practice management, you know, your growth. It's very entrepreneurial. There are other buyers on the other end of the spectrum that when you transact with them, you're gonna do things their way. And their, their way is fantastic, but you have to go into it fully acknowledging it and expecting to operate in that fashion. And then there's everywhere in between. So this autonomy spectrum has, has continued to expand so as an entrepreneur, you know, that's the number one thing that, that pro prohibits firms from transacting is this fear of losing control. Um, and that's this autonomy thing. So uh, I think that's very exciting is that today there's so many quality buyers out there that you can structure it really based on whatever economic model suits you and also whatever, whatever autonomy profile you're looking for. And that's, that's something that I think is a very positive trend that will continue to expand. Yeah, and that's a great take on you know the sort of the state of the state right now. Um, I actually, I should ask. You mentioned the quality of the buyers, and you know, some of the firms. If you look at you know, all of the M and A activity that's taken place over the last two plus years or so, um, it seems like there are about twenty five firms that are probably responsible for two thirds, maybe even three quarters of the deals. You know, with that though, while the quality of the buyers and the number of you know, high quality buyers has increased. I'm always curious about the supply side, right? You know, I've seen a lot of really high quality RIA firms and it, it seems like, you know, the, the acquisition targets are getting bigger and bigger every year. Where are we now just in terms of you know, how many high quality RIA acquisition targets still remain and how does that play out and influence the future of M&A activity in this space? Yeah. Um, well, I, actually, I just saw a report on this yesterday. I can't remember who released it, but... Uh, the number of, even with record breaking MA activity for, I think, nine years in a row, mm -hmm. um, yeah. the number of RIAs today is at an all time high. Yeah. So even, even with firms coming off the market through acquisition, the, the, the aggregate number is larger than it was ever. I mean, it has been ever. So, um, so that says to me that the, uh, the future of MA is exceedingly bright. Um, that's going to, could continue to, and, and of course, the demographics of our business are just driving that as well. Um, so I, th I think that that speaks to the reality that we're probably in the second inning of the MA uh, baseball game. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, have, I have to ask, I want to pick the question apart a little bit too, because I, I, I've seen that same stat, right? If there are two to 300 
acquisitions in a given year, um, there have been you know, exponentially more new firms that have also started right in the same period. But you know, the firms that are getting acquired, right, buyers are paying for established businesses, right, that have you know real cash flow, strong earnings, and I think you know, longer term these new entrants, right, will be viable and really attractive, you know, M and A targets. Um, but the number of firms that have more than a billion dollars in assets under management is relatively small. It's probably in the neighborhood of 1,500 or so right now. And given, you know, those are the firms that are going to move the needle for some of the largest buyers as, as they get larger. What does that part of the market look like to you? So billion dollar plus firms, right? And those that are interested in potentially doing um, M&A, is there still a good supply of high quality firms or is it starting to dry up at all in your view? Um, well, I think the number of firms just numerically, I think is somewhat stable. Um, I think you know, there's this great divide of firms that make it from a half a billion to a billion. Yeah. And that's, that's, those are the firms that decided, you know, we're going to, we're going to build a business. We're going to make substantial investments into the infrastructure and people to support going from that half a billion dollar kind of bubble where a lot of firms aggregate to the billion dollar mark. And once they hit to the billion, you know, they're, they're much more, uh, well, they grow a lot faster from there. So <laughs> because they, they know what it takes to actually build a business uh, and not, not a practice, you know? Um, and so I think that, you know, that that's a very real thing that the, the number of those firms is going to continue to grow. They've, they've figured out organic growth. They, they operate like a real business. But interestingly, I, I see a lot of firms, uh, buyers that is, that are looking downstream to as a, as an opportunity. You know the, the sub four hundred million, sub two hundred million dollar market, which has not been um, really uh, pursued by any 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 national buyer. Let's say, well, a lot of these national buyers, as they've built their footprint across the country, now they're looking for tuck-in acquisitions mm -hmm. to augment their their hubs. Let's call them. And so I, I actually think that is going to be a, a big trend going forward is the push down market um, to smaller firms. Excellent. Yeah. And, and that is something that, you know, we haven't really heard or discussed before um, on the podcast. It seems like you know, there is this interest, you use the term sub acquisitions. Um, and not only is there an interest, right, but when you have the backing of a professional buyer, potentially one that has a private equity investment, you know, behind it, right? There are a lot of different ways to deploy that capital and get Yeah, well, it's, it's a national buyer, I think, that recognizes that. And I, and I know some that, that are, you know, they're perfectly set up to go after that market because they can create like a CarMax type model yep. and, and really scale that type of, and, and also the multiples at those those smaller sizes aren't experiencing like the, the substantial increase that the larger firms have seen. So they can still go down market, um, and there's not a lot of competition, uh, and their the delta between what they're acquiring for versus what they're worth is a lot more substantial. No, that's great to know, and I appreciate that. And it would also, uh, this is just a guess here, and I would love to get your either your validation or just tell me I'm way off that way off base. But um, we've talked about so much on the RA Edge podcast that it's easier to acquire talent than it is to hire talent in some ways, especially for some of the smaller mid-sized firms. Um, how much of a motivator is that talent acquisition playing in some of these sub acquisitions, right? Or these smaller you know, types of deals that you just mentioned? Well, it's significant in the, the reality that um, firms that were acquired, you know, three, five, seven years ago, a lot of those partners are going to be looking to exit the business in the near term. And so being able to backfill those exiting partners 
with um, smaller acquisitions and, and the talent that comes along with those, I think is is very prominent. And so, um, but I would also say that the, the firms that are really good buyers recognize that. So every time they're making an acquisition with a partner who may be 55, 59, something like that, they've also started a robust Gen 2 program behind them that is growing up a lot of younger advisors to be able to step into those leadership roles. And, and from a seller's perspective, you know, I, I would look for those buyers. You know, that's a really important component of having a firm that is going to be able to look you in the face and say, hey, we're going to be here to take care of your team and your clients for a long period of time, potentially after you've left, is we know how to grow up our own talent. Uh, yeah, and no, I appreciate you, you sort of bridging the gap there. Um, it's definitely, when I look at some of the dominant themes of 2022, you know, this sort of battle for talent is very real. And M&A is playing a bigger and bigger role in helping some of the the largest firms in the industry grow and acquire the talent that they need to get, you know, not just you know, uh, to the next level this year, right? But three, four, five years down the line. Before we wrap, I just had a couple of quick questions just to bring it back to 2022 specifically. So, you know, we've talked about the record M&A activity that we've experienced and seen for almost a decade now every year. Um, we've seen the valuations increase year after year. I'm curious if you and I are talking on January 1, 2023, I'm going to ask you to do my job now. Um, what is the headline for the RIA M&A story of 2022? The headline for the M&A story of 2022. I would, um, I think it's going to look similar to, to 20, what, 2023, right? So it'd be similar to 2021. Right. I think it's going to be another record-breaking year. <laughs> so. Yeah. And then what is that? Once we get past the headline, Rich, I've written that headline before. <laughs> um but what what do you think some of the defining characteristics of M&A activity in 2022 will be when all is said and done this year? Defining characteristics of M&A for 2022. I think um, for me, it would be set buyers who truly have the ability to drive organic growth um, are going to stand out more and more. That's something that a lot of firms looking to transact uh, are going into the partnership anticipating. A lot of firms speak to their ability to drive organic growth, um, but a lot of them can't deliver or they really don't have any tangible results to deliver. So I think that uh, a focus on organic growth um, and, and not just you know reliance on the custodial referral programs as your means for organic growth, but a focus on being able to drive organic growth um, internally is going to be a, a very much a, a hot topic. 100%, right? Especially when there's little, if any, market appreciation and you have to figure out how to drive strategic and intentional growth. And you know, I should just go one layer deeper, right? Because we had a number of those professional buyers at uh, you know, the Wealth Management Edge conference you know, not long ago, and they all did talk about their ability to help drive and create true organic growth. Um, if I'm a seller and I'm looking to evaluate, because all things being equal, they could all say the exact same thing. Um, what are some of the questions I should ask or what are some of the things that I should look for to determine if you know, the firm that I'm talking to is actually one of those firms that has a track record and help, and can help me create truly intentional organic growth? Yeah, well, I would I would ask for, well, one, any, any buyer, good buyers are going to have you talk to partners that have transacted with them before. So certainly being able to ask for permission to speak to firms 
who've gone before and find out what life is like, you know, and if growth is the topic, um, what, what level of experience that they've seen, you know, um, that's a big one. Look, look for, um, KPI performance. So we, we measure something revenue per employee. We typically see that around 300,000 for, uh, for firms that are transacting today. Has a buyer been able to grow that number? So look at transact, you know, the KPI when they transacted and what does that same metric look like two, three, five years post? And what you'd like to see is that number going up to 350, 400, 500 and beyond. You know, so that that's something that's good evidence that shows that not only they can drive growth, but they can uh, drive uh, scalability into the business as well. Um, so th those would be a couple of things. Just you know, being able to talk to firms that have gone before them and find out what their experience is like, have them be able to produce evidence that says we acquired a firm at three million in revenue and three years later it was at five million in revenue. Um, right. Those, those would be you know pretty easy questions I think anyone should be able to ask. But I just want to point out, you know, sometimes you talk to sellers and they they're, they hear growth, 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 and they think, oh, my God, I'm going to be turned into a salesperson and be forced to take all these meetings that I don't really want to. That's not what buyers mean. They mean growth in their world, which typically comes by removal of a lot of operational burdens, supporting you with additional resources that you don't have today. So it's growth at scale, not by going from 40 hours a week to 60 hours a week. So don't don't be scared when a buyer talks to you about wanting you to grow. No, I appreciate that too. And it's, uh, it, it's just nice to, to settle on a, a solid definition of growth. And I also can appreciate just your recommendation, right? Take qualitative approach, talk to people, right? Find out what their experience was and then take the quantitative approach, right? Ask for the metrics, right? That can help you get a meaningful and accurate um, you know, depiction of what you know, real growth looks like. Yeah, talking, talking to buyers who've gone or sellers who've gone before you, you know, they're on the other side of the transaction. They'll be painfully and brutally honest with you about what life is like. They don't want to misrepresent anything. So I think that's one of the most healthy things that you can do is talk to partners who've transacted with this firm before. Absolutely. And it's a, a great place to land. And Alan, I can't thank you enough for taking a little bit of time to talk through you know, where we are um, and you know, how the year has changed. Um, I appreciate your perspective on how the year will most likely evolve. And we'll have to have you back on January 1, 2023. So we I can actually, <laughs> so we can actually my work. together. <laughs> yeah, I think well, it's, it's been a wonderful time spending with you, Mark. I appreciate it. And I look forward to chatting again. Right. Alan, thank you once again. I appreciate it. And thank you to everybody for joining this episode of RAA Edge. Again, this is Mark Bruno, uh, Managing Director of the Wealth Management Group at Informa. And we look forward to having you all back on the next episode of the RAA Edge podcast. Schwab Advisor Services is proud to support the RIA Edge podcast and equally proud to support independent financial advisors like you. In a challenging year, how did 68% of firms surveyed in Schwab's RIA benchmarking study meet or exceed their new client goals? By following key success factors such as leveraging new technology, adapting strategies to win new business, and stay connected with their clients, while also attracting and developing the right talent. The Schwab RIA benchmarking study is just one of many ways they provide you with the insights and resources needed to succeed and grow. Get the full picture at advisorservices.schwab.com.